Okay, take your Bibles, please, and open to the Gospel of Luke, <clears throat> chapter 10. Still got kind of a low-end, mm-hmm. kind of a mid, uh, mm-hmm. somewhere in there. I'm just trying to, trying to discover it. Luke, chapter 10, and we'll start in verse 25. Luke 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So, too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return... I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's not many things more satisfying uh, to a husband and a man than when your wife is uh, struggling with the pickle jar and she can't get it open and she summons you and says, Honey, will you please open this jar? And uh, we take it and uh, sometimes it's really hard, but more often than not, we just go... And, uh, you know, it's kind of like one side, baby, just step aside. Let me kind of, I don't want this to explode on you as I work it open, you know. It's just a very satisfying feeling when we're able to do that thing. It's, you know, we're here to protect and serve you, you know. And, uh, but I think we like that, or at least I like it so much that I find myself manufacturing that scenario. Where there will be some kind of heavy suitcase or some of my toolbox is really heavy or there's a log or something. And I'll say, I'll say, baby, see how heavy that is. And uh, she'll walk up to it, and I watch her go, you know, and she won't get, it won't move it out at all. And that's very satisfying to me. Uh, but it's only, does anybody else do that? Uh, <clears throat> now she's under my secret. But, um, but it's only satisfying if I'm absolutely positive that she can't move at an inch. I give her the opportunity, and, and it's only satisfying when I see her go, it won't go up at all. Well, <clears throat> we must be very careful when reading and handling the Bible, 
that we not manufacture it into something that it isn't. In other words, we can't take the scriptures and make it say what we want it to say. And this passage in particular is one uh, in which it would be very easy to construct some uh, bad Sunday school lessons. Uh, For instance, you look at the end of verse 25. The question, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, now look, before we romanticize that and turn it into one of these, oh, isn't it just lovely? When a person comes to grip with uh, this relationship that they must have, blah, 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 blah. Okay, now wait a second. Before we, get all, before we look at that question and just think, and, and our minds spin off and just think, isn't that lovely? Go look at the beginning of the verse again. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Okay, the, fact, the very fact that he stood up means what? He was sitting down. Okay, so it was probably a teaching situation. Jesus is teaching people. There's a guy sitting there, and in the back row there, he stands up and goes, Oh, Jesus, <laughs> I got a little question for you. He is standing up to test Jesus. In fact, uh, his, his motives were spurious. This is not a beautiful little story where somebody's uh, asked this question of the Lord Jesus and it's just this wonderful exchange. Rather, this guy was trying to t- uh, trip Jesus up and, uh, or at least supply a little ammo for Jesus' enemies. In fact, one translation I read uh, put it this way. The man stood up to disconcert Jesus. Okay, So his motives are in question. That said, the story is a wonderful story and it's included in the Bible Uh, because the gaining of eternal life is the ultimate fundamental question of human existence. Everybody wrestles with the thought. We're all going to die. Death awaits us all. No one can look off into the horizon and see what is out there. This story is in here uh, because every person that's ever walked the earth has some sense of... of, uh, not, not just the duplicity and the sin in their own uh, heart, but, but even the, just the, the mere understanding that nobody's perfect. Nobody disagrees with the statement, nobody's perfect because we all know we're not. Well, that's big trouble. Even if you just examine the so-called seven deadly sins, uh, you think um, uh, anger. Uh, yeah, I'm guilty of that, definitely. Um, envy. Oh, I'm guilty of that. Gluttony. Oh, boy. You know, I, I really am, uh, about 30 minutes ago. Greed, greed, yeah, guilty, guilty that, I am. Uh, lust, uh, disgusting, yes, true. Pride, ugh, yeah, I mean prideful, yes, guilty. Uh, how about uh, oh, sloth, oh, sign me up on that one. I mean, that was my major, you know. Uh, I mean, it's, if, if you just look at those things, people can go, oh, gosh, wow. I mean, Joe Blow knows he's guilty of everyone. How about the Ten Commandments? And after we're done looking at the Ten Commandments, what if we looked at the Sermon on the Mount? And then all of a sudden, you start to understand how weighty is this thing and how there is no way to pick up this thing called righteousness. The Holy Spirit of God included this passage in the Bible in this exchange with the Savior himself that we might better understand the fallen condition of of man and in the context of the Bible have a greater grasp of, of the beauty of this thing called grace and its provisions. Now, look at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's an interesting question and an important one. And listen to Jesus' uh, response. Jesus says, 
What is written in the law? Jesus asks. How do you read it? Well, isn't that an interesting response on the part of Jesus? It's not just that Jesus is clever and he answered a question with a question. Uh, I mean, lots of people do that. That's, it's not, but and it's not just some interesting debate tactic. Note that to which Jesus refers. Uh, the guy says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus refers to what? The law. He asks, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, when we think of this lawyer guy, this, this expert in the law, don't think of your tax attorney. Don't think of Gadder, Keltney, Bienvenue, and Montesi, or Corey B. Trott, the heavy hitter. You know, Don't think of those guys. This is an expert in Jewish law, particularly the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, He's an, including the Old Testament. Uh, he is an expert in Jewish law. And so, Jesus argues to the man. He says, okay, lawyer, good question. Lawyer, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, we learn a couple things from Jesus' response. First of all, we learn the esteem that Jesus places on the scriptures, don't we? It's the first thing he refers to. Jesus does not say, uh, lawyer, uh, what does the uh, church leadership say? He doesn't say, uh, what, do the, what does the uh, uh, church history say? He doesn't say, what do the church politics say? He doesn't say, uh, what, do, what, are the, what are the mores of the church? What are the traditions of the church? What do the teachers say? What do the priests say? He doesn't say that. He says, what do the scriptures say? He refers to the law. And in doing this, we can gain a second uh, lesson from Jesus. He proclaims for our hearts and for all time that the Bible is the word and the words of God. It is the final rule, the final measure. It, it, it is the, the rule of faith and practice. Nothing else is the plumb line. Nothing else is the rule except God's word. If you want a life application for that, here it is. No matter what anybody tells us, no matter what comes in front of us, no matter who tries to, to instruct us, if it deviates from Scripture, we have to spurn it. We have to repudiate it. We have to jettison it from our, our understanding. Everything has to be measured against God's Word because, this is, a, this is a wonderful thought, What and it's a stolen thought, what could be more clear than this? That Jesus was and is truth itself and He refers us to the Scriptures. I mean, that ought to be a, a very settling thing for our hearts. Jesus is truth. He was, he is, he forever will be. And he is the one that says, oh, to the law, to the scriptures. Let's move on. Verse 26. What is written in the law, Jesus replies. How do you read it? And the lawyer answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, he's quoting Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, uh, again, the first, you know, the Pentateuch. He's quoting it. He's very familiar with it. In fact, it's just a, it's, it's something that he has, has found a way to give a summary that is, that is so exquisite. I mean, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus answers this way. He says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, 
That, you see what a, a loaded uh, statement that is by the Lord Jesus? What was the guy's question to begin with? Back in verse 25, he says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus questions him. He refers him to the law. He gets a perfectly correct and orthodox answer. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. What does he say? Do this and you will live. Do what? Do this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor with as high a regard as you are interested in your own affairs. Now, Think about that, believer. Uh, that could make for bad Bible study number two. You could take this passage and say, okay, good. You know, for the next eight weeks, we're going to look at uh, what the heart is. And then after that, after we exha I exhaust all of you, uh, then we'll look at the difference between that and the soul. And then we'll look at the strength. And then we'll look at the mind. And we're going to have a big, long, boring, boring series on that. And I shouldn't say that. But I'm not saying that that's not, those aren't valid things to discuss. But what I'm saying is, is this what it is teaching in this passage? Why is this included in this scenario? Why did the Holy Spirit of God put it in here? The point is not to dissect all these things. The point is that it is a requirement of all we are. What would God have from us, ladies and gentlemen? I mean, have you ever, look at verse 27, have you on your finest day, I mean, you didn't have breakfast, lunch, or dinner. It's 8 o'clock at night. You've been praying all day. You read the Bible four times. And I mean, it's, it's, you didn't even have road rage or yell at your children. And it's your finest hour. You wrote a tithe check, bigger than normal. Your finest hour. Verse 27. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Have you in your finest hour ever been capable of that? Of course not. Have you in your finest hour been able to love your neighbor on par with your concern for your own self? I haven't. Have you? See, that's Jesus' point. He says... Do this and you will live. Well, that's a great answer. Theoretically, rock on. Do this and you will live. But you know what I find so fascinating uh, is the, uh, and you know, really, I read, I read some good books on this and no one seemed to get as excited about this as I am. And it's pro I know it's because I'm the dumbest guy in the bunch, but every time I read this, I'm like, what, what, what cracks me up is that the guy continues the dialogue. I mean, uh, he says, what should, what, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, okay, what's your answer, lawyer? And he gives a good answer. And Jesus says, okay, do that. All right? The, the regenerated mind recoils. Don't we? Say, oh, if that's all it takes, I mean, if, if there were no cross, and if that's all it took, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't we go, where is me? I am ruined. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. I've, I've had a view of the divine and I've come to pieces spiritually. Isn't that what the regenerated person would say? Not this guy. He says, oh, well, uh, let me ask you another question. You know, by his very continuance of the dialogue, it's an indication that he thinks he might be doing fairly well. And here's the part he thinks he's doing well on. He's thinking, well, you know, the love of the Lord your God thing. You know, a minus, you know, maybe 97. Not too bad. But I, Jesus, I do have a question. Uh, who is my neighbor? Verse 29. 
Who's my neighbor? It's kind of like he just needs a little clarification, you know? I got the love thing right, but my, the neighbor thing, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I like the Pittsburgh Steelers and I hate their uh, enemies and uh, I just, I need some clarification. And you see what he, he, he actually, he makes it very clear, verse 29, the Bible does, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I mean, we, we get an idea of where the guy stands, don't we? I mean, we understand the concept of justice, that justice must be served. If you, if you uh, break into a bank and you steal the money, justice must be served. You have to stand before the court and a judgment is going to be uh, uh, delivered. Well, when you stand before a holy court, a God who is holy, a God who, who uh, requires love with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, all of our mind, all of who we are, and we fall short, it's, it's folly to say, in, in, in one's heart, well, I just want to justify myself. I want to bring about justice concerning my case. And, and here we bring it before God's holy courts. Well, that's what this guy says. He wants to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Which brings us to potential bad Bible study uh, number three, which is to take uh, the story um, of the Good Samaritan and allegorize the thing um, and twist it into some kind of uh, pretzel where it becomes uh, a, a social doctrine. You know, a lot, of, a lot of people would take this story, cut it right out of the Bible, and say, we love this. It's a great story. You know, they're hurting people everywhere, and uh, we ought to tend to them. And, and let me tell you something. We ought to. There, there are, we ought to be concerned with AIDS in Africa. We ought to be concerned with AIDS in the United States. We ought to be concerned with starving people. We even ought to be concerned about the environment and, uh, and uh, birds covered with oil because of spills. As Christians, those are valid concerns. They are. But you can't take the story of the Good Samaritan and rip it out of context. You know, it's kind of like the Lord's Prayer. I mean, it's just amazing. Um, Jesus, he, he uh, gives instruction on prayer and he says, um, he says uh, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues, on the street corners to be seen in men. He says, go in your prayer closet. Shut the door. You know, where only God can see. And then he says, uh, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. You know what the King James Version has? Vain repetitions. You know, this kind of religion. Jack's bracket, eat no fat. Jack's bracket, eat no fat. You like that, God? Well, here's 50 more. Jack's bracket, eat no fat. Jack's bracket, eat no fat. Jesus says, don't pray like that. You're, you're, and he gives instructions. Says, "Here's how you should pray: Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name." You know, communication with a real being, a a a, a real person. And yet, what do people want to do? They want to take the Lord's prayer and turn it into Jack's bracket, eat no fat. Jack's bracket, eat no fat. They want to turn it into something rote, which is the exact opposite of what Jesus wanted. And the same temptation is there to take the story. Uh, I mean, the, sec the secular world loves the story of the Good Samaritan. They think it's just wonderful. Uh, but it's not some kind of social doctrine. You can't just clip it out. Um, because if you do, you get to the end of the story, the end of the passage, Jesus says, go and do likewise. What does that turn it into? A doctrine of works. If you pull it out of context, then you've got a guy helping somebody when the other two guys didn't help him. Uh, and at the end, Jesus says, go and do likewise. And then people go, oh, well, gosh, well, now I'm confused about salvation. Do you earn it? Or is it grace? Or is it kind of both things in there? Or where do we stand? You have to look at it in context. It's very important that we do that. So, verse 30. 
In reply to the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, we'll stop for just a a second. Uh, There is some significance to Jericho that Jesus would have picked it in the story because there was a very large population of priests that lived there. Uh, uh, probably several thousand. In fact, one estimate I read was up to, up to 12,000 priests living in Jericho. The, the, the journey from Jerusalem to Jericho is 17 miles, and it's a 4,000-foot, uh, what do you call it when you go down? Descent, thank you. Uh, four, yeah, one, it was one of those go-downer trips. Uh, it's a 4,000-foot descent over 17 miles, so it's pretty kind of, you know, kind of a tough little trip. And uh, it's cr- craggy and rocky and rugged, and there's plenty of places for thieves to hide and all that stuff. And so a man's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to go, be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Um, Now, you think, wow, a priest. A priest sees this poor hurting guy. And uh, Jesus is telling the story and the listeners are going, a priest. You would think if somebody would have a tender heart, it would be the priest. huh? And it made me think of this. We read this on a staff retreat like six years ago. And uh, after, after the whole staff read it, none of us were sure we were Christians. Uh, but uh, this, I'm serious. But this guy, Richard Baxter, this is unbelievable. This is the Reformed path, not Reformed like Reformed theology, but Reformed like please get your act together uh, type Reformed. And here's one thing that he writes in here that's just still convicting. He says, um, he's, he's referring to the pastor. He says, one would think that the very sight of your miserable neighbors would be motive sufficient to draw out your most compassionate endeavors for their relief. He says, uh, I am ashamed of my stupidity and wonder at myself that I deal not with my own and other souls as one that looks for the great day of the Lord and that I can have room for almost any other thoughts or words and that such astonishing matters do not wholly absorb my mind. I marvel how I can preach of them slightly and coldly and how I can let men alone in their sins, and that I do not go to them and beseech them for the Lord's sake to repent, however they may take it, and whatever pains or trouble it may cost me. Oh, let me do you one more thing. How couldst thou speak of life and death with such a heart? How couldst thou preach of heaven and hell in such a careless, sleepy manner? I mean, that's just stabbing. And you think, well, he's writing about the clergy. You know, the, the idea, in fact, in, when he says, one would think one would have a, a more compassionate heart in, the, in my margin. I have one would think, you know, like talking to me, one would think that I would have a more uh, a heart uh, more compassionate to these things. And so you read the story of the priest and the, the people hear it and the lawyer hears it and you hear this priest happens by and he passes this man and he, he just leaves him there. And you would think, one would think, one would think, the clergy would have a heart, but no. And so Jesus goes on to the next scenario. Uh, verse 32. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Okay, the next chap is a Levite. He's not as high up as a priest, but he still has uh, liturgical functions. He has, he's involved in temple liturgy. One would think that the Levite would stop. Wouldn't you think? A priest, you would think. Levite, you would think. And at this point... I think that the listeners are thinking, oh, we know where you're going with this, Jesus. 
the priest wouldn't stop. The Levite wouldn't stop. I bet we know where you're going. The common man. You know, Joe Jew. Friendly Schmelding from down the street. He's the one who stopped. You know, stick it to the man. I mean, the huddled masses pull through again. And, and uh, you know, you know blue-collar workers, they're great. You know? But is that where Jesus goes? It's a great parable. The priest, no. The Levite, no. What? Samaritan. I'm telling you, it's, it's hard. The, as I've been reading this, well, let's look at it. Uh, verse 33. Listen to the extent of what the guy, the extent to which the guy went. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds. Anybody want to touch a stranger's blood? Without latex, latex wasn't invented. Pouring on oil and wine, he pours oil on there to soothe it. He pours wine on there to uh, to sanitize it. Then he took, he put the man on his own donkey. What does that mean? means he got off the donkey and started walking. He put the hurt guy on the donkey and he started walking the rest of the way. He took him to an inn. He took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any expense, extra expense you may have had. Now, you see that portrait of, of going way beyond. I mean, he could have dumped him off on the, on the step of the inn and, yeah, Bessie, and off he goes and, and leaves. You know, it's like the hurt guy. Come on, you got your own bank account. But no, he tends to the guy and even says, look, if there's a problem, I'll come back again. Well, as I say, the more I, I study this, the more I realize that I really tried to think of some kind of modern-day illustration that could help us understand the sting of Jesus' insertion of a Samaritan in there. there we really have nothing in America, especially with our, our melting pot society. We really have nothing that we can, that we can understand. Um, there was a 400-year hatred of these people. They, they hated each other for 400 years. Okay, Mommy and Daddy would have a baby and go, oh, by the way, I hate the Samaritans. Oh, by, I hate, I hate the Jews. It's just the way things have been for centuries. And it was ingrained in these people. They would have nothing to do with one another. And, I, and so I, I was kind of thinking, and I, I was thinking, what could we possibly uh, use for an illustration? I thought, well, what if one of the 17 hijackers that crashed in the World Trade Center was the guy in the ditch and I was walking by? And I'll tell you, I'm, I'm about to get choked up now, and I cried this afternoon. I still uh, don't know how to process the disaster that took place. The saddest day in my life in our nation. And... Um, and again, the illustration falls apart because you've got a, a guilty man deserving justice. This is a hurt man that was beat up by robbers. The illustration falls completely apart. But all I'm saying is maybe we could understand the intensity uh, of, the, of the breach of relationship between Jew and Samaritan. So when Jesus says priest, Levite, and then throws in Samaritan in, in the heart of the listeners, in the heart of this lawyer, you, you can almost feel a cord of dissonance building up and ringing in his heart going, oh, Samaritan, come on, Jesus, the intensity with which we are opposed. And then he gets an idea of the true nature of the law and the inability to keep it. He's thinking, okay. I love the Lord, yeah, I'm deluded, but yeah, I think I handle that pretty good. Plus, it's my job and I've got a fancy robe and all that stuff. Uh, Jesus, who's my neighbor? Jesus goes into the story and he inserts the word Samaritan and the lawyer hears it and goes, now he's getting a whiff of what Jesus means. Now he's starting to understand what the law's all about. Um, you know, that's why it says, 
in Romans. Don't turn. It says, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. You know why? We can't. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. The law is held up. God says, this is who I am. This is how I operate. And all of a sudden, we say, woe is me. Two more verses here, and uh, we'll start to bring it on home. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Notice he doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say brother. He says neighbor. Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him. Doesn't the story change in our minds now? Go and, there's that word again, do likewise. What do I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, oh yeah, uh, uh, what does the law say? Well, here's what the law says. Jesus says, go and do that. The guy goes, hmm, okay, I got a little neighbor problem. So uh, what about, what's this about the neighbor again? Jesus explains it and Jesus says, go and do likewise. The issue is we can't, we can't. The law is held up to show us that we can't. We can't do. One commentator wrote this. If the lawyer or anybody thinks eternal life can be obtained by doing what the law demands, he will have to learn how extreme those demands are. And that makes me think of a song. Maybe you too. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All that. My zeal, my sincerity, my good intention, my emotions, my tears, my groaning, my grappling, all that for sin could not atone. You know why? Thou must save. And thou alone. If you have the word do in your concept of what salvation is, then you do not comprehend the concept of salvation. Salvation is a gift. The Bible is very clear. It's a gift. A gift given. And the parable of the Good Samaritan is the Savior's gospel presentation. It's not some nice little moralizing story about helping others. The, the story of the Good Samaritan is the Savior's gospel presentation. It's the gospel's gospel presentation. The good news is good news. The lawyer did get one thing right, though. And in doing so, he created a paradox. And with this, we'll close. Go back to the very first verse, verse 25. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life. You see the paradox? What do you do to inherit something? Nothing. You had no control over some microscopic thing that found the right month that made, that made you. You had no control over your days ordained. No control over the, the parents to whom you were born or the time period you were born in or the country you were born in. No control. What do you do to inherit something? 
All you do is take on someone's name. A name is given to you. A heritage is given to you. That's what happens when you inherit. You don't do anything. You're brought into an inheritance. Thus the man's folly. You know, what can I do? Uh, the Bible teaches me, listen, I don't understand all the Bible. Confusing. There's a lot of stuff and it's ancient and it's, there's, I don't know what, where to start. What can I do? Uh, what do I do with this God who is utterly pure? What do I do? Uh, what do I do with the, with the fact that I know that I'm guilty? I mean, I, I, I know it. I feel it. I'm ashamed of things. I mean, it's, it's testimony. What can I do? What can I do? What can I do to inherit eternal life? Nothing. Salvation is a gift. And that is the gospel according to Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you loved sinners and in obedience to our Heavenly Father, you uh, came to earth and lived a life we couldn't live and died a death uh, we couldn't die. Uh, you paid a penalty we couldn't pay. We bless you and thank you that salvation is made available to sinners, that it's a gift. And when that gift is received, a name is taken, we are Christians. A heritage is given, we are children of the King of all kings. And a place is secured with you forever where there is peace, no more tears, no more pain, and a peace that surpasses all understanding. Woo us closer to you, we who know you, and might the wind of salvation blow across the heart of the lost. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everybody.